Let's turn to Galatians chapter 3 and Romans 5. Two passages tonight. We said at the outset of Better Call Paul that one of our goals is to engage the texts, and that includes a lot of texts that are not obviously apocalyptic in revealing the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ. They're not usually highlighted as such, but we're finding that they, in fact, are quite demonstrative of that. And I want to emphasize a thought tonight, if I don't quite get to it. We're not having service tomorrow night. So Galatians chapter 3 and then Romans 5, especially the question, keep this in your mind, does when the, the Bible says the gospel is the power of salvation to everyone who believes, does that mean that it's the power of salvation only to all who believe, or does it not mean that? And so there's some real fine-tuning. You ever hear of the word rightly dividing the word of truth? This is a sharp, sharp division. So Galatians 3, we'll start with verse 7, and we'll take a couple of moments of silent prayer. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful opportunity. In an obedience to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 16, may we truly make the most of every opportunity and redeem the time, for we can redeem the time a day at a time from this evil age and exploit it in the age to come. Thank you for the privilege of the joy and the peace and the filling of hope, the infilling of hope that comes with believing, as Romans 5, 15, 13 says. And we pray that you will be honored and that you will be glorified and the church edified through this message, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Picking up from Galatians chapter 3 in verse 7, we've been working over this text pretty rigorously in the past few weeks, and I want to just bring us all the way through from 7 through 22 if I can. So I'm going to do this briefly with minimal commentary, and it is my translation from the Greek text 3.7. You know then that those who are from Faithfulness, that's a famous phrase here and in Romans, ekpistios, referring ultimately to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We know that those who are from faithfulness, these are the sons of Abraham. And Paul builds on this until he gets to Galatians 6.16. The sons of Abraham will be called the Israel of God. Peace and mercy be upon them. Verse 8, now the scripture, this is the one we really hammered home on Sunday with eight points. Now the scripture, foreseeing that God would deliver or liberate the Gentiles, that is, set them right by delivering and liberating them. The scripture, foreseeing that God would rectify the Gentiles by faithfulness. There it is again, ek pistios, famous phrase from Romans 117, the righteousness of God which is his saving righteousness, is revealed from faith, ekpistios, to faith, pistin. Preach the gospel. The scripture preached the gospel in advance to Abraham, saying, in you all the nations will be blessed. That's all the nations, including Israel, as we've found, all the nations of the earth and all the times of human history. And the blessing here 
The gospel preached in advance is an unconditional promise and it has a universal horizon. In you, all the nations will be blessed in Abraham. But as we'll see later, it fans out into a more important addition in Abraham and his seed. And so then, again, Paul repeats with a little bit of addition here. Those who are from faithfulness, ekpistios, are blessed with faithful Abraham. For those who are of the works of the law, here we have, instead of ekpistios, we have ex-ergon, who come from the standpoint of the works of the law, are under the power of the curse. Because as it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue doing everything that is written in the book of the law. This is a passage from Deuteronomy 27:26, used, no doubt, by the teachers who made an incursion into Paul's churches and tried to overturn the gospel. Verse 11, now it is evident that nobody is justified in God's eyes by the law. This is a negatively an echo of Psalm 143.2. You can compare it with Romans 3.20. So it is evident that no one is rectified. We could say justified or delivered, liberated from the power of sin in God's eyes by the law because now he quotes a positive side of this, perhaps Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous one will live from faithfulness. Now, in Romans 1.17, when this is quoted, we've recognized that the righteous one is Jesus Christ, that he lives in resurrection because of his fidelity and obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion. And that faithfulness is applied to all. So the righteous one will live from faithfulness. But, now they have the strong adversative, duh, in the Greek, but the law, hanomas, is not from faithfulness. Here we have the dialectic of contradictories in both Romans and Galatians. There is a contradiction and an irreconcilable placement of two gospels next to each other, two gospels that cannot be reconciled. One, justification ek namas from the works of the law. Two, justification that is versus from faithfulness, ek pistios, not your faith, but the faithfulness of Christ. The battle is not between justification by faith versus justification by law works. The contradiction is between justification by law works versus justification or deliverance and transformation, liberation, all those wonderful things by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That's important. We have much more to come out on that and doctrines that are purely sublime on the subject that I haven't even touched yet that we're going to come up with in the next few weeks and months. So it is evident that nobody is justified, we'll use the word for the sake of teaching, in God's eyes by the law, verse 11, because the righteous one will live from faithfulness, ekpistios, again. But the law is not from faithfulness. There's the contradiction. Instead, quote, the one who does them, that's the works of the law, will live by them. And that's Leviticus 18.5. 
And so if you go by the obedience to the law rather than the faithful, faithfulness of Messiah, you're under a curse, no matter what, whether you're Jew or Gentile. And here's verse 13 and 14. The story is told again in Galatians chapter 4 and verses 3 through 5 from the standpoint of the Jews, here from the standpoint of the Gentiles, and so there's a universality here. Christ redeemed us. Now get used to that word us, the plural, and the first person plural, Paul including himself. Paul is a former Jew. He is talking to former Gentiles or pagans, Galatians. He says us. He's including Jews and Gentiles in this. So Christ redeemed us, means Jews and Gentiles, from the curse of the law, becoming a curse on our behalf. Because as it is written, again, he sort of almost preempts the curse of Deuteronomy 27.26 by showing that Jesus Christ endured the curse in Deuteronomy 21.23. Cursed is everyone. Very important that that word is employed here. Everyone, pass. Cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. We have echoes in 1 Peter 2.24, Isaiah 53.4 and 5, Isaiah 53.12. Cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. The implication here is that when Christ hung upon the tree, he hung there as everyone. He was representing everyone. And therefore, he took away the curse of the law for this reason. Notice verse 14. So that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles. Notice it does not say in Abraham here. It says in Christ Jesus. Would come to the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. En Christo Jesu could also be translated by Christ Jesus, but it's Primarily in Christ Jesus, in Christu Jesu. That pretty much defines our salvation, participation in Christ. So that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, so that we, Paul again identifies himself with the pagan Gentiles here, as in Galatians 4 5, he identifies with Jews, because in Christ there is no Jew or Greek, there is no antinomy, there is no antipathy or hostility between Jew and non-Jew, between male and female, between free and slave, between Scythian and barbarian. All those antinomies are eradicated in Christ, as he says in verse 28, which we'll get to not tonight. The blessing of Abraham, incidentally, that blessing of Abraham is... Salvation and the possession of the Holy Spirit, as we'll see, would come to the Gentiles in Christ Jesus so that we, again, Paul and the Gentiles, would receive the promise. Please notice this the promise which is the Spirit. The promise is the Spirit. When Jesus said to his disciples in Luke 24 49, he said, Wait in Jerusalem until. My Father sends his promise, the promised spirit, the spirit that my Father promised, the promise of my Father, and what came to them was the spirit. And so the blessing is connected with the Holy Spirit, and that's the second of two divine missions that we'll be dealing with in Galatians 4.4 and 4.6, the sending of the Son, then the sending of the Spirit. The Spirit incorporates us into Christ. He 
grafts us into the downward trajectory of Christ so that we're crucified with him. He grafts us into the upward trajectory of Christ so that we are resurrected and ascended and seated and enthroned with him. That's participation with Christ. So that he became a curse so that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles in Christ Jesus so that we would receive the promise, which is the spirit through faithfulness. Guess what it says here? Dia tes pistios, which is equivalent to ek pistios, referring to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, his fidelity, his obedience to the father to the extent of death by crucifixion, which is followed by the father exalting him and setting him at his right hand in the highest ultimate height called the heavens. So through faithfulness, again, dia tes pistios. The reason I say that that's equivalent with ek pistios is because in Romans 3.30, when Paul says, is God a God of the Jews only? Of course not. He's a God of the Gentiles and the Jews. He's a God of all humankind. And he justifies the Jews, ek pistios, through the faithfulness of Christ, and the Gentiles, diates pistios, through the faithfulness. It's the same thing. Same faithfulness and the same person whose faithfulness is highlighted, the Lord Jesus Christ. His obedience, therefore, throughout his whole life was vicarious for us. His obedience through his whole life was an obedience for us, an obedience in one sense as us before God the Father. More to this than meets the eye, as we will hopefully see in the next weeks and months. And so, verse 15, siblings, Paul says, I'm about to use an illustration from human affairs. No one either nullifies or adds a codicil to a last will and testament that has been confirmed. That is, it's been legally ratified or validated. No one at that point, once it's ratified, there's no adding of a codicil or amendments, nor is there a nullification of that testament. Paul, using that illustration from everyday affairs and human life, to this. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham. Notice the word promises is plural. There shouldn't be a confusion about it. He says promises plural a couple times. He said promise singular nine times or so. And it simply means promises plural simply means that God repeated the same promise many times. And they probably the culminative use of that is Genesis twenty two eighteen when he says in your seed singular, not Plural. In the Hebrew, it's Zerah, singular. In the Septuagint, it's To Spermati, singular. You can't get away from the singular. It's not descendants, but descendant, and it's Christ. And so when he says promises, he's not saying that there are many promises here involved, but one promise, the unconditional promise of participation in the life of Messiah through the faithfulness of Messiah for all the nations. Now that's pretty good news. And I refer you to previous tapes coming up to this tape, this message tonight. I say tapes, you know what I mean. I don't know if they even call it uh, MP3s, DVDs, CDs, streaming, whatever it is. So, siblings, I'm about to use an illustration from human affairs. No one either nullifies or adds a codicil to a last will and testament that has been confirmed, ratified, or validated. You can add a codicil even in modern law, apparently, to a last will and testament that amends it slightly, but you can't add a codicil, according to Roman law at this time, 
to a last will and testament. And so now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, and to his seed. He, we could say God or the scripture, if we're going back to Galatians 3.8, the scripture that preached the gospel to Abraham in advance. Now he, God, or we could say the scripture personified, does not say and to seeds, plural, as if referring to many. On the contrary, he says, and to your seed, referring to one who is Christ. If anything could define Paul's gospel and my aspiration as a preacher of the gospel, it's those words referring to one Christ. We preach Christ Jesus and not ourselves. And we present ourselves as your genuine servants for Christ's sake. So Romans five fifteen to 19 is where we're going to compare this. And to seed referring to one. Now to one seed, slight commentary here. To one seed who is Christ, the promise or promises, same promise, made several times, was made. So in Christ, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He does not say in Christ, all the nations of the earth will be blessed if they believe, if they behave, much less. He says, period, all of the nations of the earth, all the nations will be blessed. It's important that we connect this as I've done many times already in repetition to 1 Corinthians 15:22, in Christ all will be made alive. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. We have an even more stark general universality when we're dealing with Adam than when we're dealing with Abraham. But it's the same Christ who is the seed in whom all the nations will be blessed as the Christ in whom all humanity will be made alive. Please make that connection, Galatians 3.8 and 1 Corinthians 15.22. So if you're talking in friendly discourse, it's very hard to have a civil discourse about this message. Um, so you have to approach it with some creativity and some niceness. We used to call it polite from the word polichuma, which means civil discourse. You can use those verses and say, well, have you ever considered these verses about Christ taken together. Now this seed in whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And the blessing is a shared participation with his life by the spirit. As we've noted from the connection to second Peter one, four by certain great and precious promises, which is the same as the promise God made to Abraham for all the nations. We should become partakers, participators in the divine nature. The blessing is participation in the divine nature, which is only brought about by the Spirit's incorporation of a person into Christ. And God already has plans to incorporate all of humankind into his Son. That's the good news. That, to me, I could shout from the housetops because it's the gospel. And so... This seed in whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed, including Israel, is the man Christ Jesus. The man Christ Jesus. In whom all who were once in Adam will be made alive. That means made alive, not just animated, but made alive with the very life of the man Christ Jesus himself. We were being dead in trespasses and sins. We were made alive together with Christ. 
Sun zoyo poeo. Not just zoyo poeo, life, but sun together with life of Christ. And so there is a stunning, and I, I say this emphatically, I say this as one who sees Paul's gospel as a radical apocalypse of unconditional grace for all humankind, I say that there is a stunning universality created by the correlation of these two identifications of Jesus the Christ. 3.16 of Galatians in connection with 3.8 in connection with 1 Corinthians 15.22. So what do you say, Paul? Well, Paul says this, verse 17. This is what I'm saying. See how he answers? He's pretty neat. This is what I'm saying. The law, the complete Jewish Bible has the legal part of Torah, which I think is partly right. It means the forensic or the legal voice of Torah, which came 430 years later. That's 430 years after God gave the unconditional promise to Abraham. Does not nullify a covenant, just like an added codicil can't nullify a last will and testament. Meaning if, God, if, if a guy says my will is that my property goes to my son when he reaches age 21, that's done. Nothing can be added to it. And when that son reaches 21, he gets that inheritance according to that last will and testament. How much more when God makes a promise that his seed and all who are in his seed will inherit the cosmos or all things, Romans 4.13. All things, Romans 8, 32. All things, which are already yours, 1 Corinthians 3, 23. All things. How much surer, having not spared his son, will he not freely give us all things? And so he says here, and I love the way Paul uses this analogy, the law, the Torah, the Sinaitic law, came from Mount Sinai through Moses, by angels through Moses, came 430 years after the promise. Does that nullify a covenant, which is an unconditional covenant of promise, so as to cancel the promise? What Paul is asking here is, can the law become in any way a blockade to the promise being realized among all the nations? And he uses one emphatic negation that he uses three times in Galatians, ten times in Romans, Meganoito! May it never be. Perish the thought, a.k.a. hell no. And we would say that in modern parlance, hell no. So, don't be shocked. It's a pretty good translation. I think I'll use it. Hell no. Meganoito. So, knowing that hell doesn't really mean anything, but here we have verse 18. Or let's do 17 again. This is what I'm saying. Paul says the law, that is the legal voice of the law, which came 430 years later, does not nullify the covenant, which is the unconditional covenant of promise, so as to cancel the promise. For if the inheritance is from the law, ek namu, it is no longer from the promise, ek epangalia. But God freely that means unconditionally, granted it, the perfect active indicative of the verb charizomai, granted freely to Abraham by a promise. Good news, kids. Doesn't come ek namu, comes ek epangalia, which is the unconditional promise of God. That's what Paul says. So we better call Paul. We did, and that's what he said. So then, 
Christ, who is the singular seed in Galatians 3.16, in whom all the nations will be blessed with participation in the divine nature, with the connection to 2 Peter 1.4, is the same Christ in whom all will be made alive as all die in Adam, meaning the Adamic race, meaning humankind in toto as a monolith. It is through the fulfillment in Christ of these great and exceedingly precious promises, as 2 Peter 1.4 puts it, made to Abraham and to his seed, that we tonight are partakers of the divine nature, that is, participators in Christ's life and faithfulness through the Spirit of the Son, whom God sent into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We cry out with the voice, the lips of the Son himself, because we are that identified with him now. Galatians 3.19, so then why the law? Why'd the law even come around, the legal part of Torah? It was a temporary prosthesis. I use that word because the Greek word is actually prostithemy from where we get our word prosthesis, a prosthetic device. It was a temporary prosthesis. And by using the word prosthesis, not as an, one, something for an amputated limb, but for something for a limb that is going to be healed. It's prosthetic until a healing occurs. It was a temporary prosthesis because of transgressions until the coming of the seed. Now, God had a big plan. He wanted the law to increase transgressions because he wanted to magnify the fact that his salvation of the human race is by grace. And that's all the more obvious when the human race sins more than ever. And that's by the addition of the law that the transgressions would increase. Does this make God the minister of sin? Does this make Christ the servant of sin? Make a night, though. I'll explain that. So then, why the law at all? It was a temporary prosthesis because of transgressions until the coming of the seed. Coming of the seed is the coming of Christ to whom the promise was made. It, the law, was ordered through angels by the hand of a mediator. Verse 20, he gives two weaknesses to that law. Now, a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. This is a, an oblique reference to the Shema. The Lord our God is one. And it also has a correlation in Romans 3.30. God is one and the same who justifies the circumcision ekpistios and the uncircumcision diapistios. Same God of Jews and Gentiles alike. Is the law, Paul says, with its forensic, legal, cursing, enslaving voice against the promise of God? That is, can it, here's where the meganoito comes in. That is, can the law successfully blockade the promise of God? Meganoito. Of course not. Emphatic negation. For if a law had been given that had the power to give life, then righteousness, or we could say, or deliverance, would be by the law. If a law had been given that could give life, and there's no such possibility, because of the weakness of the flesh, as Romans 8, 2, and 3 says, then righteousness would be by the law. But no such law can be, so righteousness has to be by the faithfulness of another, the Messiah Jesus Christ. Thank God for his incarnation. Thanks God for his life of vicarious obedience. Thank God his obedience took him to the extent of crucifixion. 
thank God for his burial and resurrection and ascension and enthronement, all of which are saving, part of a saving event. So here the law is portrayed first as having been commanded by angels, therefore it's weak, it comes through angels. As Deuteronomy 33.2 indicates, Acts 7.53, Hebrews 2.2, Josephus in antiquity is not an inspired, but at least a possibly historical record, a good historical record, Antiquities chapter 15, fifth paragraph, third sentence. And secondly, by means of a mediator, of course, that being Moses. So, commanded by, the, by angels, weak. The promise was made by God, one God to Jews and Gentiles, an unconditional promise that in Christ all the nations of the world will be blessed. The law was weak. It came by angels, and the implication here is by angels in the absence of Yahweh, through a mediator, Moses, a sinful man, who had to be rebuked from God a few times, unlike Christ, through whom came grace and truth. The law is revealed also to be, thirdly, powerless to give life or righteousness. Righteousness or justification, therefore, is the giving of life to an undeserving person. That's what justification is. In contrast, the promise can liberate from sin and death and the curse of the law. Promise has the power to give life and to bring deliverance, and it was made directly by God to Abraham and to his seed, Christ, which the church collectively is. Listen carefully to this statement because it's going to take 10 repetitions before you, you, you say, oh, I get it. This is made by God to Abraham and to his seed, Christ, which is the church collectively. It's Christ corporeally, the church corporately or collectively. In other words, the seed becomes Christ and the church is Christ in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, and which mankind collectively will be. I'm going to say that sentence again because I've got to figure out a way to fan it out into a doctrine. In contrast, the promise which has the power to give life and bring deliverance was made directly to God, directly by God, to Abraham and to his seed Christ, which is the church or which the church collectively is. 1 Corinthians 12, 12, compared with Galatians 3, 29, in which mankind collectively will be. Mankind collectively will be Christ corporate. The church right now collectively is Christ corporate. For as the body is one but has many members, so also is Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. Keep on holding on to that thought because that's going to be developed in subsequent weeks. So I think we can look from here directly over to John 1.17, which we're not going to do tonight, but I just want to remember because the first hints or gestures by the Holy Spirit pointing to the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ happened at the farm, just in the transition from the farm to the Alamo, when we read how that the law came by Moses, but grace and truth, which I defined as unilateral covenant fidelity, came by Jesus Christ. Unilateral covenant fidelity, or the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, came, though the law came by Moses, the unilateral covenant fidelity of Jesus Christ came in his coming, which is we're going to see is not only the coming of 
Christ, but it's also called the coming of faithfulness. They're both the same. And so this is where we were given some early gestures by the Holy Spirit toward USSJC in our particular church history, Tetelestai Phalanx, Galatians 3.22. And here's where I want to take off on something, and we will, oh, good, we have time. Galatians 3.22, but instead, the scripture has imprisoned everything. Very strong emphasis here on an incarceration or a carceral metaphor, C-A-R-C-E-R-A-L, carceral, incarcerating, imprisonment, idea, or concept. But instead, the scripture has imprisoned everything. The word is tapanta. See if you remember that word. That's a key word in Paul, tapanta, everything without exception, everybody without exception, too, tapanta. The all things or everything. Instead, the scripture has imprisoned everything under the power of sin precisely so that the promise by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Listen carefully to this now. Ek pistios Jesu Christu. So the promise by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, listen here now, would be given to those who believe. Now here's where we get into the heart of the right division of the word of truth. Does this mean he only gives it to those who are presently believing? Well, let's just see. The word here is to those who believe. I'll just do the English transliteration so we can breeze through this. I'll have to do it again, again, and again, and again. But here we'll start with this. Tois. P-I-S-T-E-U-O-U-S-I-N. Tois pistuosin or pistuosin. And that means those presently believing. Those who believe. And we can compare this phrase from Galatians 3.22. These are key verses here. We're engaging the texts. Your enemies, I don't say want to say enemies, but those who oppose this gospel don't engage the text like this. We are. Not going to let you guys get away without engaging the text. Roman, this compares to Romans 1.16. And that's why I think we got to go to Galatians first before we get into an earnest study of Romans. In Galatians 1.16, we have panti to pistuanti, to all who believe. P-A-N-T-I, to all who believe. And the present tense is used here. And it's panti to to everyone and then p-i-s-t-e-u-o-n-t-i pistuonti which again to everyone who believes and so this is we compare this galatians 3:22. everything being shut up or imprisoned reminds me of romans 11:32. he has imprisoned everyone in disobedience that he might have mercy upon all romans 11:32, climactic verse in romans here he is, the scripture has imprisoned everything under the power of sin. And I love, look at the lamb who comes to take away the sin under the power of which the whole world is. He takes away the sin of the world. And so he liberates the world from being under the power of sin. 
The vision is being portrayed before your eyes. I'm not here to proclaim a doctrine of universal salvation. I'm here to portray a Christ who has universally saving significance. Big difference. Preaching Christ. Big difference. It's not semantics. It's the essence and heart of the ministry. So these two... Now, here's the problem where the justification by faith crowd comes in. They say, see, this promise is only to those who are believing. And it's a present active sense here. Only to those who are believing. Only to those who are believing. It doesn't say only to those who are believing. It says to those who are believing or to those who are participating in the fidelity of Messiah. Now, this is a tricky area, so you're not going to get the full picture tonight. But I'm on the way to painting that full picture. And I want to quote Ernst Kasemann from Romans, his Roman study. I don't agree with everything he says because I think there's been advances on the study of Romans up to and through Douglas Campbell and others that have clarified things much better than Ernst Kasemann saw these particular things. But he's right on, or as the British say, spot on right here with Romans 1.16. He says on page 22 of his 1980 commentary on Romans, Thus, pantito pistuante, all who believe, he says, expresses both the presence of salvation and also its universal scope. Both the presence of salvation. Now, I'm going to clarify that. The presence of salvation is in those who are presently believing. It will be with all. And we could almost say that all will believe because when They see him when we see him, even those who pierced him, especially those who pierced him. The most, the people that will glorify God the most in the eternal state are those who give testimony to the unconditionality of his grace. And those are the people that crucified him. And Christians crucify him every day over and over again by trying to correct society by Christianizing it through legislation and Christian activism. That's a, I'll show you that that's crucifying Jesus Christ again and again and again by Christians who are as guilty as those who called for his crucifixion in Romans 19 or in John 19 and who like to condemn that crowd of Jews. There's some sting to this. It expresses both the presence of salvation and its universal scope. Then Ernst Kasemann goes on to say, where faith is, there is the place of salvation. And this implies not only assurance of future deliverance. You see, salvation is, a, is an intensely experiential thing. It's called soteria. It's different from dikaiosis or justification. Salvation is actually an experience of joy and peace and of a knowledge and a certain hope of the future. It isn't a perfect life. It isn't a perfect moral life. It is a, it's an experience of a hope-filled existence. And it is accompanied by joy and peace. That's why Romans 15, 13, this is the, the, a very key climactic verse in Romans, that you may you have the joy and the peace of believing, that comes with believing. Because salvation that's for everybody is present with those who are believing. See, it's present now with those who are believing. When every eye sees him, every knee will genuflect, every tongue will make a confession of faith that Yahweh is Yeshua to the glory of God. 
So there's an eventuality, which I, brings me back to Ramelli's eventual apocatastasis panton, the eventual restoration of everything. There is that eventual restoration, but there's also the present experience of salvation because the place where salvation is experienced is in the believing, the ongoing believer, the one who is, we could say this even more clearly, Receive the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Those who are receiving this message are having some measure of the experience of the life of the coming age in the present. That's what John's gospel is all about. Something I didn't see the first time through. So here's Ernst Kosman without me interrupting his passage in page 22. Thus he said, Pantito pistuante, all who believe, expresses both the presence of salvation and also its universal scope. Where faith is, there is the place of salvation, and this implies not only assurance of future deliverance from judgment, but beyond that also present peace and joy as a state of openness before God and man. That's a very astute observation by Ernst Kasemann. Before he became a theologian, he was a pastor of, for coal miners, a coal miner town for 10 years. So he's been in the trenches like some of us are. So to all who believe should be construed as only to all to believe. Should it be? No, of course not. In other words, to all who believe, and that's where the justification by your faith will come along and say, it's to those who are believed. No, it doesn't mean only to those who believe. On page 155, and this is where I want you to go to Romans 5 tonight. On page 1, I'm asking you to do a lot of things tonight. You're stretching tonight. This is advanced yoga. Stretching every ligament, every tendon. And that's the way it should be according to Hebrews 5, 12 to 14. Senses exercised. So, on page 155, he now shows that not only in page 155 regarding Romans 5.17, he talks about another phrase called those who are receiving the gift of righteousness. Those who are receiving. So we have pistuo, we have that action going on. But now there's another group of people who are lambano in Romans 5.17. To those who are receiving the gift of righteousness, which is really the free gift of righteousness and the abundance of grace, they are allowed to reign in life by one Jesus Christ, those who are receiving. Now, does that mean that only those who are presently receiving are the beneficiaries of the faithfulness of Christ and are the beneficiaries of the salvific work of God in Christ? I don't think so. So he says regarding this word lambonantes, which is the present participle, the lambonantes are doubtless believers, Ernst Kasemann says. Now these take the place of the earlier many. In Romans 5.15, he points back to the word many. We've shown, as the case is being built, that many equals all in Paul. Because he said he who became a ransom, gave himself as a ransom, gave himself as a ransom for all. And in Romans 5.18, as we'll see. So he says, this, these now take the place, these believers take the place, or these receivers take the place of the earlier many in Romans 5.15. But then he says this, 
This implies no restriction. This implies no restriction, meaning this doesn't mean that the salvation is only restricted to those who are presently believing. This does not imply restriction, since, quote, all, close quote, are mentioned in verse 18, Romans 5.18, and the many reappears in 5.19. In other words, straddling 5.17, where it seems like only those who are receiving the gift or by believing, straddling that we have the many, meaning all in 5.15, and all in 5.18, and then the many again in 5.19. So 5.17 is straddled, or we could say flanked, by 5.15 on this side, and 5.18 to 19 on this side. I'm writing so fast, it's messy. Flanked. So this idea of lambonantes would actually look like this. Lambonantes, those who are receiving, does not exclude anyone because of the previous reference to In 5.15, the many, which means all. In 5.18, where he blatantly says all. And in 5.19, where he says the many again. So that does not disqualify those who are not presently believing. It may put off their experience of salvation to the eschaton, or the time of resurrection. But it does not exclude them. So he goes on to say, the point is that even under grace and as a believer, a person remains dependent on the one who, with the expression dia tu enos Jesu Christu, Romans 5.17, is with solemn emphasis opposed again to Adam as a bearer of destiny. In other words, the part that he's dealing with here in Romans 5, the idea that he's dealing with is that only two men became bearers of humankind's destiny. The first man, Adam, bore our destiny of death. The second Adam, the final Adam, the second man, bore the destiny of humankind of life. That's the whole picture. And so, in short then, what I say, this is my conclusion to this, The references to those who believe in Galatians 3.22 or all who believe in Romans 1.16 and to those who receive the free gift in Romans 5.17. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? Repeat, repeating, repeating this in the future. Though indicating the presence of salvation in believers, that's you, believing people, the presence of salvation of in believers or to those presently believing or those who are participating in Christ's fidelity and those who are receiving the free gift of deliverance and the abundance of grace through Jesus Christ, the phrase or the qualifying expressions to all who believe or to those who are believing or those who are receiving does not imply restriction. It doesn't mean only those who are presently believing become the beneficiaries of that salvation. And this is the doctrine I have to hammer out. This is the one I have to iron out to make it clear. I haven't yet done that, but I'm on the way to doing it. And so you are the guinea pigs. Congrats. I am one with you. So then, these expressions rather indicate the presence of salvation in some experiential measure in those who are participating in the faithfulness of Christ, or we could say, 
those who are receiving the engrafted word, this message engrafted into your soul, which has the power to save souls, to elevate you from the power of sin, to elevate you from the fear of death, to elevate you from the curse of the law, to elevate you from anxiety, to elevate you from other addictions apart from grace. Because once you're addicted to grace, all other addictions fall off and go by the wayside. So let's close by considering Romans 5, 15 to 19, engaging the texts. But the transgression, we looked at this already, committed, that's Adam's sin, is not like the gift bestowed. It means it's all out of proportion. We can't just make a direct comparison because one goes way beyond the other. For since by the transgression of the one man, the first bearer of our destiny, Adam, the many died. That's everybody, the whole of humankind in a single monolith. Much more, all out of proportion to that, the grace of God and the free, unconditional gift arising from the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. See, the many, the many, the many. And the free gift is not like the one man's sin. That means it's all out of proportion to it. Because from the one man's sin came judgment unto condemnation. But the gift bestowed came after many transgressions. What many? The many transgressions created by the law. And brought acquittal. For since by the one transgression death ruled as king through the one, a man, Adam, the bearer of our destiny of death, much more will those who receive the surplus of grace and the free gift of deliverance reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now, ultimately, those who receive that grace will be everybody. But right now, there are those who are receiving it, and the presence of salvation is with them in some measure. It may be a very tiny measure. It may be an almost unobservable measure, or it may be very observable in your joy and peace. And so here again, in verse 18, therefore, accordingly, just as it was through one man's transgression that condemnation came to all human beings, every means all, many means all in this context. So... Just as one man's transgression, Adam, the first bearer of our destiny, condemnation came to all human beings, so through the one man's righteous saving act came the deliverance which is life for all human beings, justifying life or the life that is created by the promise revealed and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so, verse 19 For just as through the disobedience of the one man, first bearer of our destiny, the many were constituted as sinners, so also by the obedience, read that as fidelity, read that as the faithfulness of the one man, Jesus, the second bearer of our destiny, the many equals the all, reconstituted as righteous, or we could say rightly delivered in the sense of being the objects of the divine king's rescue mission, which is the right thing for a sovereign to do. It's the right thing for God to do. His righteousness is not an attribute of his essence in Romans. It is an act of his mercy. As we've learned from Psalm 22:31, a generation yet unborn, that's this one, was yet unborn when Christ died. A generation yet unborn will hear 
about his righteousness, that is, what he has done. His righteousness, that is, what he has done. His righteousness equals his radical, apocalyptic, saving act in Christ for all mankind. The presence of that salvation is with those who are receiving the gift, with those who are believing, with those whom the gospel ha- in whom the gospel has elicited or kindled faith by lighting the human spirit, the wick of the human spirit, which is the candle of the Lord. So that's you. And don't descend into that slough of despond, as John Bunyan's novel would say. Don't descend into that slough of despond that says, why me? Why are you blessed with the present experience of salvation? You got a problem with that. Tell me you have a problem with that. Well, others aren't yet. Well, don't worry about them yet. Oh, worry about them, but don't worry about them. Not yet. Because there is an eventuality here. And this is one last thing I'll answer to go leave the 99 to get one question that was asked. What about John 3.36? Somebody sent that in a condemning text to somebody. What about those who do not believe the Son upon whom the wrath of God remains? They don't not believe it. They don't obey the Son. You cannot use that. Those to attempt to undo the unrestricted nature of eventual salvation or the eventual apocatastasis panton by using John's gospel is to fail to recognize that A, John is very universal in his salvific horizon, John 1, 16 to 17, and B, that believing in John's gospel throughout, all 99 uses of it, is the means of having the life of the coming age now compared with Romans 15, 13, rather than in the eschaton, when following general resurrection, every tongue makes a confession of faithful allegiance to Yahweh as Jesus, according to the scriptures. On top of this, the fact of the wrath remaining on those who don't obey the Son is not, despite the fact that prejudiced and biased translations already committed to a wrong gospel say it, It does not refer to the threat of eternal damnation. But the wrath remaining is not the threat of eternal damnation, but of remaining in Adamic ontology. And perhaps even at the time of the writing, if this preceded A.D. 70, a warning against the conflagration of A.D. 70, which is also found in Rev. the Book in John 8, 21 to 24. More on this will no doubt be coming. Previews of coming attractions given at the end of the feature. That's all. Let's have a word of prayer. And as we pray, I want to convey to you, Larry Sheasley gave me this message from Blaze Urban, whom he saw today. Judy and him are visiting him frequently as Ricky is. They have the human touch of Tetelestai with him. He is extremely grateful and expressed that thanksgiving to all of you for your prayers, for your thoughts of him and your concern for him and the cards and letters. So in the words of Dean Martin, keep those cards and letters coming. Apparently he, he likes them. So uh, that's a message from Blaze, who is my co-laborer in the Lord and our co-sufferer in the Lord. So keep him in prayer and your thoughts and in your heart. You hear that all the time with people when disasters are thoughts are with you. I don't give a damn. 
Your thoughts being with me don't mean anything. But if you say this, we're praying for you as we're thinking of you, then I got something. That's fine. Our thoughts with, I don't care if a president's thoughts are with me. What's that? What does that say? Zero. Our thoughts and hearts are with you. Let's kill that metaphor. That's a dead metaphor. It doesn't say anything. All right. That's just a gripe. So, Father, thank you for this. Thank you for this opportunity, I think. Thank you for at least what you're getting through this message to this little flock. And may the the assurance and the hope fill each heart in this believing. Thank you that you've granted us the gift of faith, the giftedness of believing. And you are granting that to us. We don't ask why us. We say thank you. And we thank you because you now have given us hope and confidence for all others. For we have confidence in God through Christ for all of humankind.